Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Continuing our sermon series entitled, We Believe, where we are studying the theological doctrines that define us. You might call it our theological DNA. Today we come to the doctrine of election, the sovereignty of God's grace in our salvation. Uh, This is a complex doctrine, one surrounded by no small amount of controversy. Uh, You may have encountered a Calvinist in the time of their life that we like to call uh, their caged season, which is the time about two years after they first become to believe these things, where they really ought to be in a cage because they can be a little no-holds-bar when it comes to discussing and studying and thinking through these things. If you encountered one of those, uh, I am sorry. They're not our best representation, though I was one of them at one point. Uh, And the cage the Lord put me in was starting to date Jenny, who was not yet there. And so that helped me tone down. It's a complex doctrine, it's a controversial one, so why teach it? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, was once asked the same question, why preach such a controversial doctrine? His answer was, because it is in God's Word, and whatever is in the Word of God is to be preached. The questioner followed up, asking, but do not men abuse this doctrine? Spurgeon replied, I grant you that they do, but... If we destroyed everything that men misuse, we should have nothing left. Remember that men do read the scriptures and think about these doctrines, and therefore often make mistakes about them. Who then shall set them right if we, who preach the word, hold our tongues about the matter? So, why do we preach this? Well, because it is in God's word, and whatever is in the word of God is to be preached. Uh, Some of you may not exactly be sure what I'm talking about with all this when it comes to the doctrine of election, so let me state it up front for you uh, so that you can have at least some clarity of where we're heading, what we'll be discussing. This is the teaching that before the foundation of the world, uh, in love, God chose who would believe, and so he undeservingly saved them in spite of their sin. It's the teaching that before the foundation of the world, God chose in love who would believe and so undeservingly save them in spite of their sin. God was gracious to us. This is what we're going to study in Holy Scripture today. However, before we begin, I do want to make a few preliminary statements. Um, Because it's so complex and because it can be such a controversy doctrine, a few things to clarify up front. First, uh, we should admit, we should own, we should embrace the fact that God's Word teaches both uh, God's sovereignty and man's accountability. Uh, but it does not tell us exactly how the two are reconciled. This is a mystery. It teaches both God's sovereignty and man's accountability. Uh, you might call it free will. I prefer accountability or responsibility. I think that's, that's clear about what we're talking about there. Both are taught in Scripture, and they are profoundly important, both are, to embrace for the good of our souls and for the integrity of God's Word and for the health of the church and for the advancement of God's mission and for the glory of God's grace. But when teaching the two and discussing the ultimate deciding factor in our salvation. We must place the emphasis where Scripture does, which is on the deciding factor of God's sovereign grace. Preliminary statement number two. This this doctrine plays a critical role in relation to the gospel of grace. It is not the gospel of grace. Election protects and preserves the grace of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. And so we are not more passionate about election than we are the gospel. In fact, in the 11 years I've been here, I do not think that I've preached one message devoted to this topic in the entire time I've been here. So it's an important doctrine. It is important to us, but only the gospel is of first importance. 
which dovetails us into the third statement I want to make in a preliminary fashion. Uh, One does not have to believe or understand or agree with this doctrine of election in order to be saved or to be a member of this church. To quote Mr. Spurgeon again, he says, We give our hand to every man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is not intended to divide Israel and Israel, but between Israel and the Egyptians. A man may be evidently of God's chosen family, and yet, though elected, may not believe in the doctrine of election. He says, we trust their hearts are better than their heads. You guys got to be ready for Spurgeon to tell you, but I'm going to tell you what I think is right. But then he goes on, he says, we do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus, but simply to an error in their judgment, which we pray God to correct. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And when we meet around the cross, we hope that we shall ever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Finally, if you do want to give this doctrine more attention than I'll be able to give to it today in just one message, uh, let me recommend first, there are plenty of these back in the back. If you've lost yours and you never got one, this is our statement of faith. And there are lots of footnotes with scripture references uh, regarding this doctrine here. That's a great place to start. Just look up the passages, get in your Bible. Um, A second place, if you want a book-long treatment, uh, is this book by Sam Storms called Chosen, Chosen for Life, The Case for Divine Election. Chosen for Life, The Case for Divine Election by Sam Storms. All right, if you're taking notes, the sermon title is Seeing and Savoring the Splendor of God's Sovereign Grace. Seeing and Savoring the Splendor of God's Sovereign Grace. Our passage is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. I invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Will you please pray with me now? Our Father and gracious God, we come to you now asking that you would make our hearts to be as open as our Bibles are. Also, we ask that you would strengthen us with power through your Spirit that we might comprehend from this passage something of the breadth and the length, the height and the depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. We need your help. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most significant things that I have ever read as a Christian or in my Christian pilgrimage, one of the most significant things I've ever read, of course, besides Lord of the Rings, that's the obvious given here, is an extraordinary passage found in C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. In it, there is this essay where Lewis is wrestling with a dilemma that he has where scripture, or his dilemma is over Scripture's commands, especially in the Psalms, that we praise God. This bothered Lewis because he understood that to essentially be God demanding us to praise Him. And he felt like that made God like some kind of man who was in need of constant affirmation. You know, tell me I'm good, tell me I'm good, tell me how good I am, tell me I'm good, you know, look me in the eye and tell me I'm good. Or, as Lewis also put it, like an old, vain woman needing compliments. And so this is how Lewis resolved that dilemma in his mind, and this is the passage that was so significant to me. It's a rather lengthy quote. 
He wrote, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought to check it in. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. Okay, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole, more general, difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we praise or value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, and this was the line that summed it up for me, because the praise is not merely, not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. That whole idea, understanding that concept, changed my life. That praise is the overflow of my joy and is in fact also the completion of it. It is what brings it to completion. Things I love, things that I enjoy, I can't help talking about because I want you to enjoy them with me. In fact, that's one of the deepest things we have in friendship is sharing joys together, whether it's, you know, you, know, you sit down and you're getting a meal with a friend and you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You have to try a bite of this. Well, if it's so good, why are you sharing it? If it's so good, why don't you just be like, oh, this is all mine, you know? Because there's joy in sharing your joy. That's part of what completes the joy. That's what brings it to its consummation. We want to say, they're amazing, she's amazing, that team is amazing, I love going to this place, you should try this, it's incredible. That completes the joy. Lovers praising their lover, readers their favorite books, fans their favorite team, and Christians their great and glorious and gracious God. Praise completes our joy in Him. I share this because in our passage, we read that the doctrine of election is not aimed primarily at our heads, as if it's something that we should know to reach maturity in Christ, and so you, you, know, you have to reach the level of election, three, you know, 103, or however they do that in school. No, the aim of election is praising the glorious grace of God. Which is another way of saying that God's sovereign grace is one of the most satisfying gifts He can give us. Soul satisfying. That's what this passage and this doctrine is aimed at. The overflow of joy in God's great grace to us that culminates in praise. Spontaneous eruptions of praise and delight in bringing others into this praise. So that's where we're going today, and I've got two points to help us get there. The first is the splendor of God's sovereignty. The splendor 
of God's sovereignty. Paul opens our passage with a call for God to be blessed because of his many blessings to us. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is a call to praise God because he has blessed us in Christ with blessings. Blessings like redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses and adoption into his family and the same sonship status that Jesus Christ has. And God has blessed us with a glorious inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. These are all delineated for us in just Ephesians chapter 1. So the point Paul's making here is God is not stingy with his blessings. This is why in chapter 3 he's saying, I'm praying for you to have strength to understand how much God loves you. He has blessed you so much. He does not withhold anything from you. He did not even spare his own son from saving you. And so God should be blessed. God should be praised because he's so rich with his blessing. And then what we see, though, in verse 4 is that all these blessings flow out of this primary cause. God chose you. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, you'll want to note that even as statement right there. Even as he chose us. That has a causal function in this sentence. God has blessed us, in verse 3, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, or just as, or because, He chose us in Christ. This means every spiritual blessing we enjoy from God flows out of His sovereign decision to choose you. in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And the, that word, he chose us, that, the Greek word there is eklagomaya, which is where we get elect from, and is why we talk about the doctrine of election. God chose us, he elected us, verse 5 says, according to the purpose of his will. So his sovereign will. And if you look down with me at verse 11, look down at verse 11 in our passage, we read in him, something very similar, we have similar ideas going on here. In him we have obtained an inheritance, that's part of those spiritual blessings, having been predestined, we'll come back to that word, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, God predestines, let's break that word down for a minute, predestined, pre is the prefix, it means prior to or in advance of or before, destined as in destiny, meaning the appointed or the final end of something, so God predestines, in other words, in advance, he determines our final end, according to Paul, Paul says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so not your will, not my will, not anybody's will, but God's will alone. Because God is the sovereign one. To say that God is sovereign reorients the mind. It turns our sinful way of thinking right side up. And I get this Straight out of the Bible. The prophet Isaiah explains in Isaiah 29, verse 15 and 16. He says, Ah, oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? In other words, you in sin, you sinners out there. He says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? 
In other words, the prophet is saying in our sinfulness, we turn everything upside down. We turn the world upside down. We put ourselves on top and God under us. We make ourselves sovereign. We make ourselves autonomous and God under us. We don't say that, but that's what, well, some out there do. We would not say that, but that's what we do. But to insist God is sovereign begins to set things right. It begins to turn our worldview right side up. He is the sovereign one. He is the potter. We are the clay. And the potter has every right over his clay. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11, the Lord declares, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So to say that God is sovereign is to say that God is God, and there is no other. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is the only blessed and sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is under no law, or, or yeah, no, under no law outside of his own will and nature. That In fact, God is a law unto himself, and that he is under no obligation to give an account of any of his ways to any of us. And to say that God is sovereign is to say that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. God does all things according to his own purposes. This is the prerogative of God being God. And this is the one who elects us, who chooses us. He chose us. He chose us, and he did so, verse 4 says, before the foundation of the world. So the who, who elects us, it's the sovereign one. The when, when this choice was made, is before the world was created. Now, before eternal times. God picked out for himself those who would believe in him. And for those who honor Scripture, there's no real debate here. Uh, we see it here in our passage, Ephesians 1.4. We also see it in 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, there's his sovereignty again, which he gave us, there's the grace, in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. The ESV has, more, has a, a footnote saying, more literally, the Greek says, before eternal times. God gave us salvation in Jesus. He gave you and me. He gave you and 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 you. He gave us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He gave them to us in Christ before eternal times, before the world began. Another passage, Matthew 25, 34, teaching on the final judgment. Jesus said, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So on that last day, when you walk through the gates into the fullness of your salvation, receiving your glorious inheritance as God's own Son, you are walking into and receiving something that was prepared for you. It was made ready for you. It has had your name written on it, written on it in the blood of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You had, or God had that all prepared for you, not only before you existed, but He had it all ready when He founded the world. It was already prepared for us. This is when the Sovereign One does His electing. So, so far we've seen the who of election. It's the Sovereign God. He chose us. We've also seen the when of election. It took place before the foundation of the world. One final thing we need to see here is the where of election. The where. Where does it take place? Answer, in Christ. In Christ. 
So verse 3 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where Jesus is. So all his blessings in heaven, they are ours in Christ Jesus. And verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him, that's the same as in Christ before the foundation of the world. So some of you have maybe struggled with the doctrine of election because you have not tried to understand it from your position in Christ. The doctrine of election cannot be understood apart from Christ. Because you see, he is the elect one. He is the chosen one. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, same word, my elect, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So God says here, speaking of Jesus, behold my, se- my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, my elect one. And the New Testament teaches the same thing. First Peter 2, verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, same word, elect and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus is the cornerstone, but he is a chosen and elect and precious cornerstone. And then same book, but back in chapter 1, verse 20, the apostle Paul writes, for he was foreknown, a very similar idea and language to chosen, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. The sake of you. I mean, what a sweet passage that is. Chosen foreknown before the foundation of the world Jesus was. He's the chosen one, but he was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Do you see how this works? We are elect because he is elect. Because we are united to the elect one. This all takes us back to our sermon from last week with the Trinity. You are chosen in him. But it's amazing how we turn this all around. Do not ask if you are elect. The question is, is Jesus elect? Is he the elect one? And do you love him? Is Christ the elect one? And did he die to forgive you of your sins? Have you repented of your sins and believed in Christ? Is he your savior? Is he your older brother? Is he someone that you love? Is he someone that you adore? Because listen, we don't start with election when we're thinking about election. People make shipwreck of their assurance because they try and figure out, am I chosen? Has God elected me? Am I one of the elect? But you don't start with election and trying to figure this out. You start with Jesus. You start with your cleansing. You start with your forgiveness. You start with Jesus being your savior. And only from that vantage point, standing in Christ, can you try to peer back into eternity past and determine, well, if I'm in Christ, then I must be the elect. And really, it's only from, by the way, in Christ that you can peer into eternity future towards your glorification and say, well, if I'm in him, then I'm going to be there too. Jesus is all our assurance. We are in him. God can no more lose his grip on you than he can lose his grip on his son. You are in him, and therefore you are elect because he is the elect one. Jesus is your assurance because he is the elect one. God has loved you from forever because he has loved his son from forever. I mean, do you see this? This is incredible. It like it nails your feet to the theological ground of assurance in Jesus Christ. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with it? Well, here's what we do with this. If you have not yet come to Jesus for salvation, come to Jesus! Come to Jesus today! Take him as your Lord and Savior. Listen, he never cast out anyone who comes in faith. He forgives all sins. He clothes with his own righteousness. He gives the Holy Spirit, and he will keep you until the end. So come to Jesus. Believe in him. Listen, listen. God does not tell us if we are elect. This is what God tells us. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believe and you will be saved. And then on the other side of that, this is what you'll have. You know what you'll have? You'll have this, 1 John 5.10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Has the, what testimony, John? What testimony do I have welling up inside of me? Well, you have the testimony that Jesus saved you. You have the testimony that Jesus cleansed you. You have the testimony that Jesus forgave you. You have the testimony that you are in Jesus Christ. You have the testimony that God loves you. You have the testimony that if you're in the elect, then you are the elect. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon was once asked about identifying the elect, about, you know, shouldn't you just go and, and figure out who the elect are and preach the gospel to them? Because, you know, if it's only the elect who get saved, then you should just preach the gospel to them and not waste all this time preaching all these other people and all this. And, uh, you know, he has the best responses. If you want a snappy response, Spurgeon's your man. And so his response was, well, if the elect had a yellow stripe going up their back, I'd go around lifting up shirts. point is they don't right i mean i haven't looked at all your backs but (laughs) pretty sure that was sarcasm that's not the way this works god's method for identifying the elect is the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world and those who recognize themselves in it that they are sinners in need of a salvation or of a savior those who respond to it with saving faith in christ the elect one They are the elect. You can't identify the elect any other way. You have to preach the gospel to all nations, to everyone. And Christ's sheep will hear his voice. And they'll respond, and they will follow him, and he will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. John 10, 27. He is the sovereign one, not us. So we go and proclaim his sovereign grace to the whole world. Well, this leads us to point number two then this morning. Point number two, the splendor of God's grace. The splendor of God's grace. In our passage so far, we've seen that the who of election is the sovereign God. He chose us. Next, we have looked at the when of election, that it took place before the foundation of the world. Then we studied the where of election, that it takes place in Christ. And so this leaves us with the why, the why of election. Why did God choose us? And for those who believe the Bible, This really is the heart of the debate. Um, There is no way of evading the force of the Bible's teachings on the who, when, and where of election. Uh, So the force of the teaching, the force of this doctrine is this. Um, It exalts God and it abates man. That's what this teaching does. You see that, right? It exalts the sovereignty of God and abates the sovereign autonomy of man. It exalts the sovereign saving love and grace of God and it, it... abates our ability to save ourselves. And so you can't evade the teaching, the force, that force of all this, you can't evade it with the who, when, where, because it's so plainly taught in Scripture. Everyone agrees there is a doctrine of election. Uh, It did happen for the foundation of the world. Um, It it happens in Christ. Everybody agrees with that. No, No sound, solid Christian disagrees with that. Where they try to evade the force of all this is here in the why. Why did God choose us? And so I'll give you um, the popular answer and then the, um, we'll call it the biblical answer. We'll start with the biblical answer. It's found in verses four and five of our text. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace. So the biblical answer is God made this choice to save us. The why here is in love, according to the purpose of his will, the praise of his glorious grace. So the why is God wills to exalt the splendor of his loving grace. That's the biblical answer. Now I'll give you the more popular answer. 
You may feel a little bit like I'm, I'm kind of picking a fight by saying like the biblical answer and the more, and the more popular answer. Uh, if you feel that way, I am. Like, you're feeling what I want you to feel, but I'm not trying to be mean, and that's why I'll tell you, right, I'm showing you my cards, right? Like, I'm not trying to be mean, I'm trying to provoke what I hope is a healthy, good argument and thinking, right? Like, we need to be able, the Lord says that wisdom from above should be able to be open to reason and able to contend with each other. Like, we, we should, the Lord invites us, come and reason with me, right? And so, there is a sense here where I'm putting out what I believe, but I'm doing so in a way that I hope provokes your thinking in a godly way and encourages you to reason this out with us here, okay? So the more popular answer is, for why God chose us, is God chose you, us, on account of his foreseeing you choosing him. God chose you on account of his foreseeing you choosing him. He foresaw your faith in him. So, to review, biblical answer is he chose you to exalt the splendor of his loving grace. The more popular answer is he chose you because you chose him. If we boil it down to these things, right, these arguments. And in the end, the more popular one, I would argue, exalts the splendor of you choosing him. See the difference? Let me work through this in Scripture a little more. I mean, I think we've got it right here in our passage, but let me show you where else. There are a number of places we could go in Scripture, but begin with, the Bible excludes human choice. Human choice, God, you choosing God, it excludes human choice as the basis of God's choice. Um, the Bible excludes human's choice as the basis of God's choice. I want to show this to you, but let me just remind you what I said at the preliminary. You're, you're going to say, well, okay, but do I have a choice? Yes, you have a choice. Does my choice matter? Yes, it matters. Am I accountable for my choice? Yes. But I thought you said God sovereignly chooses. I did say that. So which is it? I'm saying it's both. Do you understand? Because I'm saying there's mystery here. I'm saying God doesn't reveal how it all works out, and I don't try to make it work where God hasn't revealed it. I think both are true, and we must embrace both, but one gets the accent when we're talking about what is ultimately decisive in our salvation. Um, Spurgeon, again, was asked once, you know, like, how do you reconcile you know, human responsibility and divine sovereignty? He says, I never reconcile friends. I never reconcile friends. I don't have anything to reconcile. Like, they get along fine. I don't try to reconcile what Scripture does not reconcile for me. Uh, I leave that to mystery. I was trying to explain this all to my kids last night, and I said, you know, imagine if the fish in our fish tank were trying to imagine what our lives would be and the decisions we make outside of that fish tank. Like, they, would just, they wouldn't have categories. They wouldn't understand how we think, how we live, how we live outside of water. What is that? How does that even work? I don't know, you know, like, I don't know. You know, like, how the fish are just trying to figure it out. Like, that's us trying to figure out God. Like, I don't know how it all works. And I don't have to know. I just need to embrace what is revealed. This is why it's by faith. You see, we, we accept this all by faith, not by sight. Um, and we're not proud about, nothing about this makes us, should make us proud. It's all just revelation. And so we are trying to understand what God has revealed to us because it does guard, this, the importance of the darkness is it guards grace. That ultimately God would be glorified in his grace. Okay, so back, that was all inscriptive. Back to this. So to begin with, I want to show you in scripture, the Bible excludes human choice as the, base, as the basis of God's choice. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but it's not the basis of God's choice. So number of passages we could go to, but we're going to look at Romans 9. Romans 9, in it we read, though they, and so he's talking about Jacob, and, this is Paul, Paul talking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, here's a topic, might continue, not because of works, but because of, on the basis of, him who calls, she, that's Rebecca, their mom, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In these verses, Paul explains 
how the purpose of election does not stand or fall. It is not based on our works or our choices, but on God's calling, on his own sovereign choice. Before Jacob or Esau had been born, before they had done either good or bad, before they had chosen anything or loved anything, one of them was chosen and one of them was loved and one of them was not. And it had nothing to do with their lives that they were about to live or that they one day live. Paul then continues anticipating objections. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Are we saying, you're going to say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what Paul's saying here is it's not in just of God to give mercy to some and mercy to another, compassion to some, compassion to another. His point is because no one deserves mercy. That's the nature of mercy. No one deserves it. You can't say, God, you have to give it to me because then God would be unjust if he owed it to us. But Paul's point is he doesn't owe it to any of us. And that's why it doesn't depend on him who wills, on human will or exertion, choice, but on God who chooses to have mercy. This is why it's all of grace, because none of us deserve mercy. None of us deserves salvation. Listen, in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the real mystery in divine election is why God would be inclined to be gracious to any of us. Why would he be inclined to love any of us when we were, according to Romans 5.10, his enemies? So it's not on the basis of human will that we are chosen. And, and what about that foreknowledge argument? What about that God looks through the quarters of time, down the quarters of time, and chooses whom he would choose? Or, I mean, sorry, chooses whom would choose him. And he looks through time and he says, oh, there, I see you, I see you, and you made a choice, and you made, and, okay, so I choose you because you chose me. I chose you because you chose me. I looked through time, I saw you choose me, so then I chose you back. Uh, it's kind of like, writing notes in elementary school, you know, like, I like you. Circle yes or no if you like me. You know, you pass it. I like you too. Great. Okay. I choose you, you chose me. So that's the idea of foreknown or foreknowledge argument. And they would point to a passage, those who would argue this, would point to a passage like Romans 8, 29, which reads, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So some would point to a passage like this and say, aha, see, Jace? But right here it says that we are predestined according to God's foreknowledge. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So I, you know, I receive your point. Here's my answer. Here's that. Well, I would say I actually think you're drawing too much uh, from the well of this passage here. I, th I think you're drawing more out of it than it's really there. So to begin with, objection number one, the objects of the verb for new. What's the object of the verb for new here? It's, a, it's persons, not actions. It's people, not choices. Those whom he foreknew. Second, I would argue that the nature of the verb for new that he, those whom he foreknew, refers to love, not to cognition, not to knowledge or understanding. So you could almost translate those whom he foreloved. And I think it, it, because it cannot be cognition. It, you can't make sense of scripture if this is cognition. I mean, just go back to Jacob and Esau there for a minute from Romans chapter nine, right? In a cognitive sense, God foreknew both of them. God foreknew both of them, but he said it wasn't about any of the decisions they made or anything that I did. It was nothing about their lives. I just chose one and the other. 
So if we're to be consistent here, we can't say foreknowledge is cognition. It has to be something else. Or earlier we looked at 1 Peter 1 and it talked about how God foreknew Jesus. Well, was there like he knew Jesus before there was a Jesus? Well, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. We just studied the Trinity. Like Jesus always was with God, is God. And so it can't be foreknowledge. It has to have another meaning. And study of Scripture reveal it also means love. It's another way of saying loving. Now, for loving, it, it, kind of like we use the language like uh, regarding in, you know, sexual relations between a man and a woman in the Bible. You know, he knew his wife. He came in and knew her. You know, like this intimate love, this deep, deep love. And so I think that makes more sense of Romans 8 and 9 or the other uses of foreknowledge in the Bible. Moreover, Moreover, if the argument is that God foreknows our faith, foreknows our faith, if he looks down the corridors over time and he sees our choice and faith of him, well, then it's not possible for the Bible to also say, as it does in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You can't say... Well, I got saved because God chose me when he saw I chose him. If the Bible also says, it's not your own doing. You didn't do this. Well, how did I get saved then, Paul? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, here's the reason, no man may boast. No man may boast. If election is based on God foreknowing what I'm going to do one day, the choice I'm going to make, the faith I'm going to, I'm going to have, then it's based at least in some measure on what I do, on my choosing, on my believing, which means at the end of the day, I'm at least able to say to some small degree, I was, I believed, I chose there was enough, I may have been depraved in some way, but I, there was enough good left in me that I could choose God. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. What is it Paul teaches just a few verses before this in Ephesians chapter 2? He says that we were, in fact, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked. So we were, we were dead men walking, we were dead man walking, Paul says, following the course of the, the world and the prince of the power of the air. Then he says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, for those of you who are, who are wondering, okay, what about free will, Jason? I haven't, talked, I haven't heard you talk about free will. Don't, didn't God make us with a free will? So how, how do you work this all out? And I would say, so I like responsibility and accountability better than free will because I think free will is misleading. And here's why. This, passages like this are exactly why. Um, because free will means we are free to choose what we want. Free will means we are free to choose what we want. Well, if we are free to choose what we want, but we are dead in our sins, dead to God, then what we wanted was to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. That is our will. That's what we willed, that's what we wanted, and so that's what we chose. See, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards said that the will is fettered, chained, bound. It is fettered, yet free. There's an aspect where it's free, but there's an aspect where it's fettered or bound as well. It's free in the sense that we are, uh, I think he called it a, a creaturely freedom, a creature's freedom. We have the freedom to choose what we want. But it's fettered in the sense that from the fall, we have been bound by our sin. We do not have a moral freedom to choose what is right. Instead, we carry out the desires of, what Paul says, we carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And Paul says, are by nature children of wrath. By our very nature, like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That, right there, what Paul's talking about, I'm just, I just read right out of the Bible. That is your new birth in Christ. That is your regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But just think about it. If you could repent and believe with that old heart, if you could choose God, then why did you need a new heart? If you could choose God out of that old heart you had, why did Jesus need to give you a new one? You see, the, that, our foundational problem, apart from Christ, is not what we do, it's what we are. Apart from Christ, our foundational problem isn't what we do, it's what we are. What we do does matter. What we do does matter, but primarily in the sense that it reveals who we are or what we are. What we do, the words that we choose, the actions, all of it, all of it reveals that we are dead in our transgressions, that we are sons of disobedience, that we are by nature children of wrath. And this should drive us to adore God's sovereign grace all the more. For we know that we have no real control over changing our nature. We have no real ability to raise ourselves up from the dead. We have no real ability to get into the family of God. We don't have those ability, but the sovereign one who is rich in mercy and full of grace with his great love, he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Oh my goodness. The conflicting emotions of a preacher is that I can get so excited about these things and because they're marvelous and they're great truths to proclaim. But I just am amazed that I'm saved. Because I know where I was in my sin. I know the rebellion I was on. I was following the desires of my body and mind. I was not looking for God. And he turned me around in his grace. It's amazing. There can be a misunderstanding about the doctrine of election that it's all about just trying to figure out who God lets in and who God keeps out. And it's a, it's a misunderstanding that I think is very helpfully cleared up by um, an author named Mark Webb in an article he wrote, what, does, what Difference Does It Make? He describes an interaction he had with a when he was teaching on divine election, and I've just always treasured this account. He says, after giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I have ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing, visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven, and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, Yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but not you. 
this situation, or the situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction toward hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place, and hell would be bursting at the seams. I don't know why God chose me. I don't know why God chose many of you. That's largely out there in mystery. It's mystery in the sense that I don't know why He chooses some of us and not others of us. But what I do know is that those whom He has chosen, He has chosen that we might magnify His grace. What were you? Paul asked the Corinthians. You were the weak. You were the ones not powerful in this world. You were those who were not strong. But God chose you to make the wise foolish and to show the wisdom of the grace of God. So in conclusion, let's try and tie all this back to Lewis's insight about praising God. According to our passage, the aim of election, the divine election, is the praise of God's glorious grace. The reason for election, which worked itself out in sending Jesus and redeeming us through His blood and predestining us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, is all so that the splendor of God's sovereign grace would be seen and would be savored by us and would be enjoyed forever and ever and ever. And that joy would spill over in lives of grateful praise. Enjoyment overflowing into thankful praise. And this just taints the whole Christian life. Our whole mission, our whole evangelistic mission is one of trying to urge others to get in this with us. To join in. We go around the world singing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace from an amazing God who sent an amazing Savior. So Come, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. Come, it's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's, it is amazing grace, Lord, and we, we're humbled by it, we're enlivened by it. (laughs) I can't believe we get to get in on this. And what an amazing privilege we have to share it with the world. God, I pray for those in our midst today who have never considered these things before and are trying to keep their head above the water. Pray, God, you give them understanding, insight, Pray for those who are wrestling, honestly trying to consider uh, what we have opened up in your word today, Lord. I pray that you would be with them. 
Give them strength to comprehend. Give them humility to work through this with other people. God, I pray for all of us that this doctrine would not produce any arrogance on our part. You know, we are the elect. Um, God, it should produce humility in all of us. I can't believe that God chose me. God, make us a humble people, poor in spirit, but loud in love, loud in our praise. And send us out, Lord, with the message of saving grace. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.